The End of Astronauts, this week on Planetary Radio. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. Space is hard. It's also dangerous, especially for living things like human beings. Does it make sense to send astronauts at great expense into deep space? This is the question asked by Donald Goldsmith and UK Astronomer Royal Martin Rees in their new book, The End of Astronauts, Why Robots Are the Future of Exploration. Whether you agree with their arguments or not, I think you'll find our conversation both stimulating and thoughtful. It will be followed by an opportunity to win their book when Bruce Betts brings us yet another space trivia contest in What's Up. I'll be leaving for Washington, D.C. soon. I'm very excited to once again attend and help host the Humans to Mars Summit from Explore Mars. The summit's return to an in-person gathering runs May 17 to 19 at the George Washington University. The all-star list of participants includes many past planetary radio guests and a lot of other folks I look forward to chatting with for our show. The Planetary Society is once again a co-sponsor of this great event. Want to join us in D.C.? You can learn more and register at exploremars.org summit. I hope to see you there. April 22nd was Earth Day. That explains the beautiful Earthrise image of my favorite planet that tops the April 22nd edition of the Downlink. The Planetary Society's free weekly newsletter includes a recap of the planetary science and astrobiology decadal survey we talked with Casey Dreyer about last week. There's a link to Casey's in-depth analysis of the recommendations. We also learned that the United States is ending at least one type of anti-satellite weapons testing and has called for other nations to do the same. And there's a celebration of Ingenuity's first year in the thin air over Mars. The plucky little copter made 26 flights, lasting a total of 46 and a half minutes, and traveled nearly 6 kilometers. I expect someday we'll see it take a place of honor in the Smithsonian Institution's Mars-based annex. More is waiting for you at planetary.org downlink. Astronomer Royal Martin Rees was professor of astronomy and director of the Institute of Astronomy at the University of Cambridge. He is a past president of the Royal Society. Among his many awards are the Templeton Prize and the inaugural Fritz Zwicky Prize. The author of hundreds of papers and many other books has now teamed with Donald Goldsmith to create The End of Astronauts. Don is an astrophysicist and the author of books including The Runaway Universe, Exoplanets, and with Neil deGrasse Tyson, Origins. He has received Lifetime Achievement Awards from the American Astronomical Society and the Astronomical Society of the Pacific. With credentials like these and a carefully considered argument, it was inevitable that their new collaboration would receive a lot of attention. They recently joined me in an online conversation. Donald Martin, thank you very much for joining us on Planetary Radio, and thank you for this deeply thought-provoking book, which is also, I would say, simply provoking, uh, which I'm sure is something that you fully expected. Welcome. Good to be with you. Thank you. I will also note up front 
the thesis, your major thesis in this book is heresy to many of our listeners, or, or at least fighting words. I'm sure you knew you would, as I said, see resistance from fans of, of human spaceflight, right? Or, or did this come as a, a surprise, uh, Martin? Well, uh, you must exaggerate our view. We are not looking very far ahead. We're looking 20 or 30 years ahead. We accept there will be people in low Earth orbit. But what we do say, and I don't think this should be too controversial, is that it's very, very hard to send people to Mars and back compared to sending a robot. And for exploring, uh, clearly we're going to depend on robots and not humans on that timescale. Of course, we wanted to be controversial by asking the fundamental question, how important is it? Is it just simply that we must do it? Is it our destiny? Shouldn't you stop and think about the costs, the dangers, the comparison with robotic exploration? And Martin is a little more generous than I, even with the moon, it's not at all clear why we need to send astronauts to the moon, as he once did, to fight the Chinese or mine the moon or establish a moon colony for purposes uncertain. In the next few decades, wouldn't it be wise to do what we do so well without risking human life and doing it far more cheaply? At least people should talk about that instead of saying, why are you bothering to bring this up? We must go. Let's follow up on that uh, mention of destiny uh, having a role. You paraphrase philosopher James Schwartz when you say that the desire to explore that it's not in our destiny and ne neither is it in our uh, DNA nor innate in human cultures. Could you expand on that? Because there, there are folks out there who see this in all three of those factors. It's a good question to talk about it. But even if destiny is in our culture and our DNA, we are exploring. The question is, do we have to do it in person? It's just assumed that if Columbus set foot on the distant shore, then we must. In fact, we've got wonderful exploration going on on Mars, for example, right now. It's human in the form of emissaries we built. If I can add to that, I think we've got to think about timescales. We're talking in this book about uh, certainly not more the century ahead and mainly a shorter timescale but that. But let's remember that the sun will be there for six billion years and uh, human beings will have evolved into something quite different long before that. So when we say that it's not our destiny, we think it's not the destiny for flesh and blood humans to go very far into space. But if I can uh, jump to, towards one of the later chapters in our book, I think we do suspect that by the end of a century, there will be some privately funded adventurers living on Mars, having gone on a one-way trip, and those guys will have every incentive to use all the technology of uh, gene modification and cyborg techniques to adapt themselves. And those guys will become a new species within a few hundred years. And having done that, if they become inorganic, they won't need an atmosphere and they may be near immortal and they will have a destiny to go off into deep space. So it's our progeny who will, but not flesh and blood creatures like us. Homo galactus, perhaps. Um, right. <laughs> I, and, and I've heard you make this point uh, on other programs and in some of your writing as well. For the more immediate future, it is this distinction that you draw between government-supported human space travel and corporate or privately supported uh, space travel, which apparently both of you are still quite open to, Don. Mm -hmm. I only worry about the fact that even privately funded space travel could say go to Mars and start ripping things up and destroying certain key evidence. As a general proposition, 
it's true. I agree with Martin that you can leave this to the people who are crazy enough, not eager enough, adventurous enough uh, to want to go into space. Currently a 1% risk of death. All right. It may even come down and maybe you want to go one way to Mars. There are plenty of eager people who wish to do this, but I, I'm sort of dubious about the whole question of, do you need to do it? It's one thing to say you want astronauts to go somewhere. I want people to concentrate on the key question. Do we need to do it? And if not, how should we pare down for the next few decades and think rationally? Our view or my view is we don't need to spend taxpayers' money on it. If uh, billionaires and sponsors want to spend money, that's fine. But the reason that they should do it and not taxpayers is that they can afford to take higher risks than we as the public can impose on civilians. As we know, the shuttle failed twice in 135 launches. Less than 2% failure rate, but each we know was a big national trauma. But that 2% failure rate is acceptable. So if adventurers who are prepared to accept, say, a 10% risk are prepared to go, they can do it much more cheaply. So it'll cost the billionaires less than it costs the taxpayer. Let's turn to that argument that, that humans are needed just to repair and maintain the robots and the machines that get work done in space. I mean, you give the example of the, the Hubble Space Telescope, the five trips made there to repair it, to upgrade it. Uh, but you have a, a terrific answer to that. Uh, Martin, you want to share that with us? Yes. Well, it would have been cheaper to uh, uh, make five copies and launch the one after the other than to pay for the uh, shuttle trips to send send the people. And of course, the thing about robots is that they are much cheaper to send than humans. They don't need 200 days of food on the way to Mars. Um, and uh, if they stay there, that's fine. Uh, we can send some more. As to whether they can do exploring, then, of course, the present day ones can't. But if you compare perseverance with curiosity, perseverance is far more able to navigate its way around in a way that curiosity couldn't. Future probes in 10 or 20 years will have enough geological savvy to decide what's the best place to dig or to observe. And so we think they will catch up and the gap between a human geologist and the kind of probe you can send uh, will diminish, whereas the cost gap won't diminish. It'll be huge. John, I've heard you make a similar point. In fact, you looked all the way back to Viking, which had hardly any intelligence at all. How quickly do you expect AI to advance to the point where it might, let's say, equal the capabilities or at least come close to the capabilities of a human geologist on, on Mars, for example? Before I answer your question, I can't resist adding to the last answer that, you know, one point we agree, I think, with these astronaut enthusiasts is it's a mighty degrading thought to think that astronauts' greatest achievement would be to repair robots. I mean, that's... How sad to think that maybe they could do it, but what, a, what an argument. AI, let's look where on Earth. We can't yet have self-driving cars, as Tesla keeps proving quite. You see the one that got away from the police up in San Francisco the other day. But it, obviously, we're not far, with a certain amount of risk, from having a car that can navigate the entire highway system pretty well. If that's true, they can navigate Mars pretty well, too, as uh, Martin was just saying. As to the ability of a human versus out of a robot. I found this wonderful quote from my friend Chris McKay, who's a geologist with great pride, obviously, because he said, with five doublings of ability from our current status, that's 32 times better, you could have something equal to a geolo geologist's assistant on Mars. I would say that well within the time frame we're talking about of 20 years, you could send a machine to Mars 
that would equal what a geologist could do in terms of interpretation. They, people say, well, only humans can do with, deal with the unexpected. Seems ridiculous to me. Uh, they deal with things in different ways. Maybe I'm just too enthusiastic about machines that way. If I can add, I mean, I'm enthusiastic about space structures to have a huge telescope arrays in space, maybe solar energy collectors, and they can be uh, assembled by robots. They don't need people to go up. And so there are all kinds of uses for these uh, intelligent and uh, adept uh, robots. What about the power of the transformative moment, as you refer to it in the book, uh, which I will just describe as the inspiration that can be provided by seeing other humans, not just robots, because I love the robots too, mm -hmm. but seeing other humans walk on another world or any uh, place that has been unexplored. And I would apply that especially to, to young people who we want to attract to so-called STEM careers. Well, it's worth a lot, but is it worth the huge amount involved in sending someone there and bringing them back? And the return ticket's about 10 times as costly as the one-way ticket, probably. Uh, so I think it's sort of hard to justify. Uh, I'd also counter that um, uh, perhaps young people may not be quite so enthused as uh, our old generation was, because they've seen so much on the movies, etc., so many... Uh, simulations, they won't distinguish that all that much from the real thing. It's a big deal for us because we haven't seen so many space movies. It's a great idea. We can give them virtual reality to cheer them up. Uh, but <laughs> it is true that humans will always identify more with humans than machines. So it's impressive how, you know, these Mars rovers and so on gain a lot of popular attention, you might say, as quasi-individuals. I don't see any solution except the one Martin just proposed. As far as inspiration goes, you know, there'll always be low Earth orbit as we've just, it's a little late to complain about anything in that way anyhow, but the only danger is people blowing themselves up or running into each other once they're in a crowded orbit. Compromise possible, as Martin was saying. Don't spend public money. Let the adventurers go on a one-way trip. People will identify with them. By the way, they should also be careful to identify with a one-way nature, and that will inspire the young. But when I talk to my grandchildren, of whom I have three, at least the ones who are old enough to talk about it, they want to go into space, and they don't ask too many questions about Mars. It's space, space. Yes. They can go there. And, and one other point I'd mention, giving the edge to the robots, is that uh, the robots can't go just to Mars. As you would agree, I'm sure, um, it's not crazy to send them to uh, Europa and Enceladus and places like that, which will make very exciting discoveries. So that's an order of magnitude harder for humans and probably not feasible at all with present propulsion, uh, whereas one could perfectly well send uh, sophisticated robots um, to the uh, planets and their moons in the outer solar system. I will give you a thought that occurred to me as I was reading the book that I look forward to suggesting it mostly seriously, though not entirely, to uh, my friends at NASA, which is that they make the next Mars uh, missions, Mars rovers, Mars landers, look as anthropomorphic as possible. Uh, <laughs> because I have friends who identified with spirit and opportunity because they were cute and they had two eyes on top of their neck to look around and uh, curiosity and uh, perseverance somewhat well, less. Also, instead of movies where humans go everywhere, you need more robot explorers. There's the one movie, Wall-E, am I pronouncing it correctly? Oh yes, Wall-E, of course. <laughs> where there's a wonderful, cute little ro robot and so on. It didn't have the same success as Star Wars, but, you know, the more we, we could get there. 
But nonetheless, it's not so much the look as the anthropomorphization of the, I don't know, the, the speech patterns, the, the messages, the, but everything that could be made more that way. On the other hand, you wouldn't want NASA to be caught spending millions upon millions just to do so because it's not right. Well, maybe Disney could help out from the goodness of their corporate hearts. Um, There is another point that you make in the book. I'll summarize it as, what's the rush, Don? Yes, that that is our our point. Uh, You know, we've been setting these goals about sending, as Donald Trump said, putting the first woman on the moon and making sure the first person on Mars is an American for some time. And they keep being postponed under simple facts of life. What is the rush? Of course, I'm Martin and I are rather considerably older than we used to be, uh, and we'd like to see things happen, but we don't see that as a valid reason uh, for rushing. Many good things are done by careful planning and also adjusting the circumstances. Look what happened with the Hubble. It started as a total failure, thanks to the astronauts, etc. It's totally outlived its projected lifetime and still working. We should be careful about these things. We're talking about huge amounts of money and in some cases, human lives. What is the rush? The only one that comes up is co- competition, usually. Well, there's a desire to keep NASA going. They've got to do something, but they're doing plenty as it is. I I keep bringing this up to people. They don't seem to worry about it. But I think if the Chinese really get active with humans in space, this is going to be seen as a tremendous spur that we must catch them and surpass them. But that's the only rush that I see. A new space race. Returning to the less rational, uh, both of you and I are old enough to remember when humans stepped on the moon. Certainly for me, and I suspect for you as well, it was a it was a wonderful moment. It was a great moment of pride and inspiration. This is likely, in spite of the arguments you make in your book, this is likely to happen someday on Mars, though it's certainly proving to be much more difficult than was thought at the time of Apollo. If we're all lucky enough to be around, won't you feel that this is some kind of a great milestone for the human species, uh, Don? Well, yes, by the way, I, let me recall that I was in the press room at JPL the night that Viking One touched down on Mars. I was in the auditorium, was standing with Ray Bradbury and some other folks, and what a moment that was. It made a deep impression around the world, not as much, I guess, as the first humans on Mars, but, you know, we, we, we had that, okay, it came and it went. Uh, I would certainly feel a common human pride, even if it violated some sort of detailed argument we're getting into here, depending on who it is. And, is he Chinese and so on. But from that point of view, you should do it once. Look, we went to the moon. We had this great inspirational moment. It ended, it'll be 50 years come December, the last human on the moon. Okay, we did it. You could say, if, if that were the problem, let's do it once. I, I, I might almost favor that if it meant we could relax about it and not do it anymore. Martin, would you be among those applauding when uh, that first woman steps on Mars? Uh, certainly. I mean, just to say that at the time of Apollo, I think many of us thought, it would only be a decade or two before there were footprints on Mars. But as we know, NASA funding, which had been huge to beat the Russians, uh, was appropriately choked off then. So uh, that's why the project lost momentum. Um, but uh, I, I would, and I think um, Musk has said he wants to die on Mars, but not on impact. And uh, in 40 years' time, um, he might make it. And to be the first person to get to Mars, to be the first person to die on Mars, would be a great achievement, and uh, I'd be happy with either of those. For him, you mean. <laughs> <laughs> Gentlemen, you have, as I said, created a most thought-provoking book. I enjoyed it. I recommend it. The book is The End of Astronauts, Why Robots Are the Future of Exploration, 
And uh, if you have heard this uh, conversation, listeners, and you have been shaking your head and, and your fist at uh, your uh, talking box the entire time, I still recommend you read this book very highly. Uh, gentlemen, thank you for joining us and, uh, and for providing this uh, provocation. Thank you, Matt. Thank you very much. Good to be in touch. Donald Goldsmith and Martin Rees have written The End of Astronauts, Why Robots Are the Future of Exploration. It's published by Harvard University Press. You'll have the chance to win a copy in a minute when we join Bruce Betts. This is Planetary Radio. Hello, I'm George Takei, and as you know, I'm very proud of my association with Star Trek. Star Trek was a show that looked to the future with optimism, boldly going where no one had gone before. I want you to know about a very special organization called the Planetary Society. They are working to make the future that Star Trek represents a reality. Boldly go to build our future. There's so much going on in the world of space science and exploration, and we're here to share it with you. Hi, I'm Sarah, Digital Community Manager for the Planetary Society. Want more space? We've got the latest news, pretty planetary pictures, and Planetary Society publications on our social media channels. You can find the Planetary Society on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook. I hope you'll like and subscribe so you never miss the next exciting update from the world of planetary science. Time for What's Up on Planetary Radio. Here is the chief scientist of the Planetary Society. He's with us every week. It's Bruce Betts, and he's here to tell us about the night sky and much, much more. Welcome back. Thank you. Good to be back. I've got exciting stuff to tell you, as always. As always. Pre-dawn sky in the east, still a planet party, and in fact, Venus, super bright, brightest night sky object besides the moon, natural object. Jupiter, second on that list. Oh my God, my dog is so excited about it. We'll be very close to each other on Saturday, April 30th in the morning. I can't tell you how playfully excited my dog is about this. My other dog plans on sleeping through it because he just doesn't do pre-dawn. But if you do, they will be closer than the width of a full moon to each other. And if you look to the upper right, you'll have a couple more planets, reddish Mars and yellowish Saturn. And Jupiter will go up higher than Venus over the following days and they'll separate, but they'll still be close and make for quite the lovely view over in the pre-dawn east. We go on to this week in space history. It was 1949 that Gerhard Kuiper discovered Nereid moon of Neptune, one of the many small moons. We just reflected back on the late 90s comet Hale-Bopp recently. Well, it was 1996 that comet Hikitaki was the uh, closest to the sun. Hikitaki and Hale-Bopp giving us nice shows a couple of years in a row back in the late 90s. I've said it before. I need another one. Oh, yeah. We should arrange that. I'll, I'll start making some calls. On to random space fact. <laughs> That was so straightforward. I thought I'd be different. Mariner 1. You remember Mariner 1. It didn't go very far. Fortunately, there was a Mariner 2 that became the first flyby, successful flyby of another planet of Venus. But poor Mariner 1 uh, was launched on an Atlas Agena rocket. And uh, shortly after liftoff, it went off course and range safety uh, blew it up. The errors were traced to the emission of a hyphen-like symbol. 
in one of the guidance program characters. And anyone who's done programming, coding, knows the heinous pain of uh, having a symbol that's not in the right place. Really? But you'll like this. Arthur C. Clarke, famous science fiction author, described the error as the most expensive hyphen in history. (laughs) Oh, Sir Arthur, you were a card. (laughs) (laughs) I thought you'd like that. And hopefully you enjoyed the trivia question, Matt. I did. I asked the world, where in the solar system, where in the solar system is there a mountain named Kaplan? Which I'd like to think was named after you, but maybe we'll hear otherwise. How do we do? I uh, Thank you, first of all, for this, uh, this birthday celebration uh, question. I wasn't the only one who enjoyed it. A lot of people enjoyed it. We had more entries than we have had in quite a long time. Here is the response from Dave Fairchild, the Poet Laureate in Kansas. If you look around in space for mats out in the void, there's one that's known as Kaplan, but it's an asteroid. So if you want to find a place you actually can go, Antarctica is where you'll find Mount Kaplan in the snow. Indeed. Kaplan is on Earth, the mountain. I I tried to find you something elsewhere in the solar system, but... You know, Earth's a pretty good place. I, I like it. As you know, as Bill Nye says, most of my favorite people live here. Um, <laughs> Norman Kassoon in the UK gave us a lot more details. It's a big mountain, appropriately. It's it's huge. It's, uh, let's see, almost 14,000 feet, just over 4,200 meters. It's the biggest one in the Hughes range of Antarctica. And uh, it was discovered and photographed by Admiral Byrd on his uh, flight made in 1929, but it wasn't named, says Norman and a whole bunch of other people, until 1957, uh, 57, 58. It's named after, oops, not me, Joseph Kaplan. He was the chair of the U.S. National Committee for the International Geophysical Year, which was 1957, 58. So good on you, Joseph, and uh, I just... I'm just going to have to wait my turn, or as Barry Olson says, uh, Barry in Alberta, Canada, sorry, Matt, perhaps in another universe. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) That's true. I didn't open it up to another universe. Here's our winner, Octavio Lamas. He's a first-time winner in Arizona. He he kept it simple. He just said, it's on Earth, and that's good (laughs) enough. Octavio, thank you for entering. We're going to send you... Uh, Fred Hayes' great book, Never Panic Early, An Apollo 13 Astronaut's Journey, uh, by Fred Hayes with uh, Bill Monroe. Fred Hayes, that Apollo 13 astronaut. And thank you, everybody, who let us know how much you enjoyed that uh, that conversation with Fred. Let's move on to the next trivia contest. Here's your question. What was the last spacecraft to do a Venus flyby? Orbiters of Venus do not count for the purposes of this question. The last spacecraft to do a Venus flyby. Go to planetary.org slash radio contest. You have until May 4, May 4, 2022 at 8 a.m. Pacific time to get us the answer to this one. And I bet you can guess what book we're giving away. It's The End of Astronauts by our guest this week, Don Goldsmith and uh, the Astronomer Royal, Martin Rees. It is provocative, as I said, but a a very fun read, as was my conversation with them. With that, we're done. 
All right, everybody, go out there and look up the night sky and think about if you were to name a mountain after someone, who would it be? I wanted it to be you, Matt, but I don't know. Can you have two mountains? Wait, let me look outside just a second. Yep, there's a molehill. It is now Matt Kaplan. Thank you, and good night. He's Bruce Betts, the chief scientist of the Planetary Society, with that molehill in his backyard. I will be over there tonight, Bruce, to plant a flag in it. uh, (laughs) Make sure you bring a little tiny flag. (laughs) As we finish this edition of What's Up. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by its delightfully human members, Human or AI, you're invited to join them at planetary.org slash join. Mark Hilverda and Ray Paletta are our associate producers. Josh Doyle composed our theme, which is arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser. Ad Astra. Ad Astra.